Welcome to Sport Fate Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sport scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Today on Sport Faith Life, we are joined by Roger Leip. Roger is a chaplain to numerous teams in his hometown of Carbondale, Illinois. He's also served with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in that same Southern Illinois area since 1994. He is also the author of 14 books written for athletes, sport coaches, and character coaches. His latest book is called Frontlines, Becoming an Effective Sports Chaplain or Character Coach. We are really excited to have our friend Roger Leip with us today on Sport Faith Life. Let's get started. Roger, we're excited to have you here with us and wondering if you can start by telling us a little bit about your sport background. Yeah, it's funny. I love sport and grew up. Um, my family always talked about that I loved baseball and loved to compete from about the time I was able to stand up. Um, love watching. I'm a Cardinals baseball fan since the Yankees traded Roger Maris to the Cardinals in uh, probably 66 or so. And so, but, but followed those guys and love playing baseball and grew up playing lots of pickup basketball. Although I really, because of my high school wrestling experience, I think more like a wrestler than I think like anything else. Um, it really shaped the way I approach sport and um, really it became the lens through which I view life. Uh, after being a pretty mediocre wrestler for those years, I became a wrestling official and was a much better official than I ever was a wrestler. And that further shaped my approach to sport of um, caring deeply. And it really helped me integrate my faith and my, and the sporting experience together while I was an official. So we're going to have to pursue that. Uh, you thinking like, like a wrestler, we'll pursue that a little bit later in the, in the podcast. Good. Tell us a little bit about your faith background. I committed my life to Christ when I was 10, grew up in the church and it's, not a spectacular thing at all. I'm the firstborn in a set of three boys, and I knew this was the right thing to do, so jumped in at a vacation Bible school when I was 10. But at 10 years old, there were a lot of things I didn't understand and hadn't really uh, tried to figure out what does all this mean until in at 16, I went to um, an event called Explo 72, which was a Campus Crusade event right in the middle of the Jesus movement. And so here I'm a 16-year-old skinny uh, jock from Southern Illinois, and I go to Dallas, and I'm watching. There are hippies here giving up heroin for Jesus. There's power going on here I don't know anything about. And that began to really, suddenly I realized I had power to share my faith with people. And so that really lifted the lid on my faith, and suddenly I'm sharing my faith with classmates, teammates, people all around the school. and. Uh, really launched uh, largely who I became much later in life. Well, Roger, you've already given us some clues into the interesting life that you led in terms of sport and faith and that, that Jesus is more powerful than heroin. Those are important things. But we're, I'd like you to peel back the curtain just a little bit. 
give us one thing maybe that uh, people might not guess about you, maybe a hobby, something about your family, something that uh, is off the beaten path a bit. Yeah. Um, it's funny, growing up where I did in a very blue-collar family, um, didn't value education all that highly. And so at 19, uh, one year into a junior college, I got bored with it, shot way too low, was bored with the program I was in. I quit, went to work, got married, pushed ahead. So now my son, who's 43 with a master's degree, uh, he calls me a JUCO dropout because I am. I, I took a very circuitous route to gaining the skills and understanding that I needed to do what I do now. So have no formal education beyond one year of a junior college program. That's not a merit badge, but it, it's the fact. Whatever education I've gathered has been terribly informally done so. Educated by life. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and, oh, no. and your life has gone in a really interesting direction, and, and yet it's been really consistent, meaning uh, you have gotten onto a subject uh, and an interest area and a mission and stuck with it. I mean, you really stuck with it through your time. So can you just start by walking us through a little bit of that uh, progression? Yeah, it's probably partly due to that wrestler mentality of uh, tenacity. I'm not about to quit. Um, but starting way back 26 years ago, when a new fo head football coach at the university just came to town, I was just beginning to walk into a relationship of working with FCA. I just went by to welcome the guy to town and say, hey, glad you're here. Hope to pray with you. Anything I can do for you, I'd love to. And he asked me if I'd be their team chaplain. I said, sure. Had absolutely no idea what that meant. No clue whatsoever. And so started with that from zero. Um, but then lots of trial and error, lots of mistakes, but occasional victories and figured things out over the years and then wound up in a network of people that could coach me a little bit and help me gather from what they do and have developed things across 26 years. And not just developed. I mean, you've really become a leader in so many ways and, and developed a lot of initiatives to help people who are confronting situations like you had right early on. And so I'm thinking specifically about, um, you know, you and, and your your weekly emails that you send out where you've mm -hmm. aggregated this group of people and mm -hmm. you are there as a support network for them. So it seems to me that while your job title might say, uh, you know, chaplain of athletics at, at Southern Illinois, working through FCA and, and doing all of, you know, Southern Illinois as a region, you know, so much of what you do is, is leading other sports chaplains. And I wonder if you can speak to your experiences with that. Yeah. W way back about 2000, way back even maybe before that, I had been uh, learning these things and wondered if some of the things we did were peculiar or the way things worked were peculiar to college football in the U.S. So I'm trying to find periodicals or books or anything to enhance what I was doing. I did an all-day search on Yahoo. Google didn't even exist at this point. So it was a Yahoo search all day. All I could find were some articles in newspapers or magazines from Australia or New Zealand. I mean, there was nothing written. So I'm kind of commiserating with a, a colleague about that. And he says, why don't you write it? I said, I don't even know why what I do works. Are you kidding? So I spent three years thinking about and then writing down 
why does this work the way it does? And then uh, in 2003, I was at a conference in uh, Greece, of all places, where a bunch of the sports chaplains from around the world were gathered, along with other sports ministry leaders. And I asked them direct questions about their experiences and blew me away that the the three big ideas that I had identified as to what makes this ministry work, they told me the exact same things from Brazil or Jamaica or Africa or Germany or wherever they were, same exact stuff. And that gave me more confidence to share what I'd learned from them. And um, part of that writing on Fridays is lots of us do really good stuff. The practitioners of this, but almost nobody writes it down. So I said, I'm going to write it down. And as people tell me stories, may I write your story down and share it with everybody else? And so now that's about 500 plus sports chaplains around the world that I just send an email to every Friday. Hey, look at this. This is a good thing. Hey, I read this book. This is worth sharing. Things like that. Or here's something I experienced. Maybe this is valuable to you. And those things that you've written down have been valuable. They've been really helpful for chaplains all around the world. And and those three things that you mentioned, I, I want to come back to. But I, I want to take a little turn and just hang out where you are just for a second and get a little more personal. As you think about chaplains from around the world, is there a type? Is, who gets into chaplain sports chaplaincy? What? Yeah. How do, and maybe there isn't. Maybe it's people from all over the place. But maybe you've noticed uh, certain people are drawn uh, to this particular mission. Yeah, I'd say there's two or three traits that are really most important. Um, we typically are extroverts. We like people. We, we like crowds. We love noise. We love going where there's a lot of stuff going on. We're typically extroverts. There are a few introverts spread, spread around in there. Secondly, we're people who absolutely love sport. We don't tolerate sport. No, we love it. We embrace it, warts and all. We're going to hug it, get sweaty with it. We we're, we want to be in it. And then thirdly, there are people who love God in a very active way, as opposed to a passive way. We're very activist in our uh, faith. So I say those three characteristics describe most of the chaplains. So then let's get back to these three things now. Then we've got, <laughs> you know, you've identified... Um, so much about the the, the world and the, the, the profession of, of sports chaplaincy. What is it, What are those three things then that help us understand um, maybe the, the similarities across the globe of issues that sports chaplains are, are working with? Yeah, I'd say the, these three things are most critical. And one of them is uh, to build relationships. This is an entirely relational ministry. It's uh, Deeply so. It's not all that strategic. A lot of us do what we do intuitively, very work on a hunch. It's not all that strategic all the time, but it's intensely relational. That's one. Relationships are really important. You have to know which ones to pursue and which ones are distractions. Secondly, uh, there are attitudes that one must have. And then there's another list one must never have in relating to sports people because your attitude's either going to enhance or diminish those relationships. Uh, anyway, so those there are certain attitudes that really work well and a bunch that don't. And lastly, maybe preeminently, is presence. Figuring out where to be when so as to have greatest impact also really shapes the relationships you're trying to develop. Everybody in the world except for a handful are 
volunteers in doing this. We may have a job, we may have a ministry job or whatever, but related to the club we're serving, most of us are volunteers. And so we have a limited amount of time to know when to be present, uh, where is really critical so that you can establish those relationships. Uh, you can project the attitudes that enhance them. Uh, relationships, attitude, and presence are the things that I think uh, the whole thing revolves around. So as you walk through some of those uh, attributes, mm -hmm. uh, I, I this is not a comment on your age, but you had enough time to <laughs> try all these things, mm -hmm. write them down, think about them, and do it again, right? You uh, In your recent book, you, you did a lot of sort of self-reflection where you're going, well, I thought this, but maybe not that. Where where would you say a new sports chaplain goes wrong or gets off the path? What are some of the things that you have noticed? Yeah, some of the temptations that slide people off the path pretty quickly are, hey, I'm given access, but we handle the access we're given badly. Uh, sometimes we come into information about um, a situation, an injury or a, a suspension of a player or something, and suddenly we've got this information we're dying to tell somebody and we tell the wrong person. And suddenly it's on the newspaper front page tomorrow. Bad idea. <laughs> or it's, it's in, it's in the, you know, the radio talk show, bad idea. Uh, so some of those things you can kind of get caught up in the emotion of the thing and uh, make a foolish error. Sometimes it it's, they get caught in the glamor of what's going on here it's like I, my closet's full of gear from the teams I serve, but I never ask for anything. Sometimes we can approach the things where we are with a presumptuous attitude of, hey, coach, I need a shirt or I need a dip. No, coach is immediately thinking you need to get out of my office. Um, so there are simple things that are traps that if you don't have the proper attitude, it can really betray um, your 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 flesh in a sense and kind of it could exclude you from the real opportunity that you want to have so talk us through a specific issue here too i know if, you know frontline your, your new book has mm -hmm. is has been so um it's so helpful in a practical way you know but it has such a deep theoretical basis and how would you how would you um encourage a sports chaplain a young sports chaplain who might come into working with a team and believe that the coach is not behaving the way the coach should and really come to, to believe that, you know, and so you got to act, you know, how, how do you support the players and support the coach while knowing yeah. that you believe one side is wrong or right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if I had uh, two bedrock thoughts that go, that helped us kind of serve as a filter for how do we perceive things would be these two ideas. One is to love extravagantly. I mean, extravagantly, um, a lot of things about sport are not always lovable or lovely. And so it takes an extravagant form of love to push through some of those things. And secondly, is to serve selflessly. This is not for me. It's for them. And so when I serve selflessly, I have to do that purposefully. And so there are a lot of things about sport that are sometimes ugly. And uh, one of those being uh, if sport. Suppose you're a guy like me, grew up in the church. I never learned how to curse, so I don't. So it's easy for a guy like me to have a red flag about 
language that happens on a sporting pitch or a ice hockey or wherever it is. But if we become the language police for our club, we're serving them poorly. We're not loving them in a very good way. And so uh, to be able to look past those things that may be revolting to you to get to people's hearts, that's the objective, not to try to manipulate their flesh. I'm trying to I'm getting their heart. If the Lord gets his heart, he'll change his language eventually. But um, so some of those things are undergirded by that idea of I'm going to love extravagantly and I'm going to serve selflessly. Those help me filter my own ambitions or my own preconceived notions about what's proper or uh, sometimes it's easy to get lost in the, the, the culture of things and not um, see the, the real biblical principle behind them. You know, you're talking really about a knife's edge there where <laughs> Very much. That, that, that fits uh, parenting and teaching and coaching and being a, a pastor <laughs> or a chaplain where uh, we have this idea of grace and truth, these, these uh, co-ideas of grace and truth. And I wonder if there's a moment that you can talk about, a, a specific example where uh, you had to sort of wrestle with that. You mentioned, you know, cursing or swearing, uh, you know, and we have the, the, the Christ example of, you know, woman, no one condemns you and no, neither do I. And yet now go and sin no more. You know, this, this space where grace and truth uh, abide together. And, and you're faced with that all the time, right? You're faced mm -hmm. with, with uh, loving extravagantly, and yet sometimes love is to bring uh, a certain truth that, that might be really hard to hear. Uh, it, I don't know if an example comes to mind, but I'd love to hear uh, how you've navigated one of those, maybe in a positive or maybe it didn't work well. Yeah, it's funny. We had a football player, a uh, fullback. We're standing there. It's probably November we're standing on the sideline on a maybe a Thursday practice and uh, drills going on in the field that there's about seven or eight guys standing over here on the sideline. I'm with them. One of them looks at me and he says, hey, Raj, last night I was scrolling around through the TV and I bumped into the Christian TV station and Deion Sanders was on there and they were interviewing him. And he said that he prayed and the Lord let him run a 4240. If you think if I prayed, I could run a 4240. <laughs> I said, Matt, <clears throat> there's an expression some coaches use. You can't put in what the Lord left out. <laughs> I'm I'm all for you praying, but I'm not sure I would count on a 4240. I've seen you run. <laughs> and so I could tell he was testing me a little bit. Am I going to play the religious thing? Or no, I just looked him in the eye and shot him straight because I love Matt. And, uh, it, but it was funny. Everybody grinned and go, okay, you did good <laughs> mm. because, um, yeah, once in a while guys will test us. I love any kind of response, even if it's a pushback or something else. One day, one of our assistant coaches stopped me during the team stretch and he looks at me and he says, Raj, man, our guys cuss a lot. And I said, yeah, I've noticed. He said, why do you think that is? I said, coach, it's tough guy culture. They think that's how tough guys talk. You and I know that's not true, but that's all it is. And he said, oh, yeah. Hmm. So it wasn't some big theological discussion. No, I said, coach, it's just tough guy culture. They just don't know any better. 
some guys just don't have any other adverbs. I mean, they're just at a loss <laughs> for vocabulary. Well, that sounds that sounds really logical, right? It's plausible. That's kind of, that's kind of the way you think, right? You're a straight shooter. I like that about you. Is, is that part of how a wrestler thinks? And is that yeah. different from how a football player thinks? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm just going to look in you and tell you this is the way it is. Uh, it's it's a little more direct. I like confrontation. I enjoy it. That's part of that wrestler thing. So that probably works really well with uh, with certain teams, types of athletes, maybe less so with others. Have you found that you've had to change who you are oh, yeah. or how you communicate with other teams? Yeah. You Give bet. some examples of that. Yeah, because each culture has its own subculture. Each sport has its own subculture. Football is super regimented because you have 100 plus people. You have to be tightly time regimented or you can't get anything done. So it's very staccato in the way it goes. Basketball is much more fluid and things will change and shift and move around, kind of mutate from thing to thing. But then women's basketball culture is different than men's basketball culture. And I work with both. And so when I'm with women's uh, basketball players, I just I don't talk the same way I do with men. Our conversation is different. It's much more relational and it's much softer, if you will, um, with them than it is with the guys where I'll just talk with them differently. And then last year I started serving a women's soccer team. And so I had to figure out and still trying to figure out how does soccer subculture work? What are the ins and outs of communication and even where to be at practice is different with every one of them. So it's all a work in progress, but some of it is that communication. Baseball is hang around culture. You just have to show up and hang around and things happen. Um, so you have to understand each of those sports subcultures and be able to fit into them so that the opportunities for ministry present themselves. So then a sports chaplain really, uh, some of the preparation for being a sports chaplain is to really know sport, mm -hmm. to really know the culture, to get uh, familiar with what's required of the sport, how the community develops. Um, and part of that aspect is to to draw on your own experiences as an athlete. But but a lot of it, I think you have to learn, right? You have to acquire that. Tell me, tell me how you've done that. How do you get to know, how, what's your research process for understanding uh, mm -hmm. a sport? Yeah, part of it is I'll read books about it. I remember reading when I was trying to delve a little deeper into basketball, I would read books by John Wooden or I'd read some books by Dean Smith or other coaches that I really respected. Reading biographies of sports people in those uh, sports is a good way. You can kind of get a feel for the culture and how do those people communicate with each other by doing that. I remember reading Bill Bradley's, I think it's Life on the Brink. And um, that's not it. Anyway, Bill Bradley's biography. Yeah, but some of those are really good. Uh, read a painful biography of uh, Zlatan Ibra Ibrahimovic. And holy smoke, what a jerk. And But I'm still trying to figure out soccer, you know, in that regard. Uh, reading books like Curveball by Barry Zito was really helpful to see what's going on in baseball. Uh, wow, was that direct about his sense of... Uh, performance-based identity. That was insightful, rich book. Reading um, Open by Andre Agassi was super helpful to see into the heart of a player who was just horribly broken and what spoke to his heart. So reading is part of that. At the same time, asking questions of those 
most directly uh, at my hand uh, was really helpful. When I go to coaches and players, I don't tell them a lot of stuff. I'm asking them lots of questions because I learn a, a lot about them individually, but I also learn about their sport. I learn about the processes they use, and this helps me uh, connect better um, because I'm, I'm learning all the time. So some of it is through books and that kind of thing, but a lot of it is more directly relational and uh, intuitive by uh, through conversation. We've certainly accrued a lot of experiences over the years, and it seems like it, it, it stems from a real genuine thoughtfulness about serving those that you're, that you're working with. And so um, I, I can imagine that the reception to the books that you've written has been, has been really good. You're taking a, a really thoughtful and practical approach that's also very straightforward. And so, you know, Brian and I know from uh, you know our, our colleagues in academia. We tend to be a little bit a little bit more long-winded, and then we lose our audience because of that, right? You've got this really direct approach, and I, I and I like that. So I'm wondering with this most recent book, what, what what's your process? What was the process of putting that book together? And um, so how did that go for you? It's funny. Back a couple of years ago, I was talking with a colleague from Sports Chaplaincy United Kingdom, and we're talking about maybe collaborating on a book like this that would be a very practical. More, more or less a resource guide for someone who's actually doing it. I had written a book back in 2006, which was a more of a philosophy of ministry uh, for sports people. I wanted something that was very practical. When I walk to the gym today, what do I do? Or I'm going to go meet a coach about serving his team. How do I start that conversation? Things very, very practical in nature. And so what I did in thinking about this was thought about what would I want to know if I was me 26 years ago walking into that coach's office or walking out of that first coach's office. That's what I want to know. And that's what I want to put in here. Well, this is the value of almost having the compulsion to write every Friday to the, all those people is this let me collect a whole lot of data, a lot of information, a lot of uh short pieces. And so mostly what I did is collect pieces from all that writing on Fridays into some semblance of order, uh, some kind of uh, outline that had some structure to it to where somebody's starting brand new in uh, the backside of nowhere, Ohio, he could open the book and say, I have to start a season. What do I do? It's in here under starting how to start, you know, stuff like that. I wanted it to be super practical reference. And so that's kind of how I gathered those thoughts and began to pull the pieces together and assemble them into a, into a book. You know, sport happens in the midst of everything else, right? It's mm -hmm. a part of life and it's a part of culture. And as culture moves, it affects sport and sport exactly. affects culture, right? So all these things are happening. And, you know, at, at this point uh, with our pandemic, we have a virus going on, but we also have uh, a significant amount of racial disharmony. Um, and I'm wondering if and we're we're in the midst of that right now, and so maybe you just want to have some preliminary conversations. But how how are you navigating that as uh, a person? You talked about different sport cultures. Now we're talking about you know subcultures of humanity, uh, and sport has always kind of been held up as this place where we all get along. Uh, how, how has this hit you, and and how have you sort of responded to it? 
that's funny because um, I think lots of us in the kingdom of God see ourselves in different roles. Uh, I think way too many of us presume to be prophets when we have nothing to say. And so uh, along with a lot of this, mostly what I've done is listen to my friends. Uh, I don't they don't need to hear my opinion. My opinion is not worth a whole lot. And so, but what I do is listen to them, help them process what's going on. And then if they ask me a biblical question, now I have something to say. I can say, what do you think the Lord wants? Well, it's Micah 6, 8. Yeah. I think the Lord wants us to act justly. Yes, he does. I think he wants us to love mercy. Yes. And to walk humbly. Yeah. That's going to be my stance. Um, What does Jesus say he wants of us? Love God, love people. I'm going to keep it kind of simple. And I don't need to have an opinion about everything that goes on in society. But when you're somebody like me who dabbles in social media, once in a while, there's a tendency to want to respond to something. I'm like, back off. Um, I'd rather listen than uh, just throw another opinion on the wall. And um, anyway, that's kind of the way I've, taken it is a very, again, relational approach as opposed to I'm profit to the sporting world. No, I'm not. Uh, I need to stay in my lane. Hmm. I think it's good advice for all of us. You know, yeah, I, I agree. The Micah six and the love God and, and love your neighbor. That's, that's mm-hmm. timeless, right? It's timeless. Exactly. But over the, over the 26 years of your career doing this, um, how has your approach changed or how have things changed for you? Well, I'd say things have changed for me a lot uh, in my approach about how do I communicate. I remember reading Leonard Sweet's book, uh, Soul Tsunami, about 2000. And he was talking about the effect of postmodernism on the church and how do we communicate? How do we act in light of, you know, the onrush of postmodernism? And I realized at that point, that's 20 years ago now, that I have to change the way I think to fit postmodern thinkers, or I'm going to be a dinosaur quickly. And so I did. And um, being, you know, I'm 64 years old now, I grew up in a very modernist world where things were black and white. They were just either on or off. And but so shades of gray were terribly uncomfortable at the beginning. Now, I, I learned to think this way because everybody I'm serving thinks that way. Okay. So that was for me, one of those shifts was mindset shift. Um, Others of them are uh, just emphases um, in the U.S. at the big, very beginning. Almost everybody I knew that was from Athletes in Action or uh, FCA was very much a sports evangelist more than they were a sports chaplain. And um, as the more I was interacting with folks from around the world, I'm watching most of the U.K. and Australia, New Zealand, those guys were very much more pastoral in their approach than they were evangelistic in their approach. And so I did, I've gathered from their skill sets and their approaches, and it helped shape the way I go about things. Um, and I didn't throw evangelism away. No, this is part of the entire process. And so I think it made us more well-rounded in caring for people in a better way than just with one, one singular agenda. Um, I'm looking for whole life development with people and spiritual development is certainly an important part of that. That's often untouched at all by most of the rest of the world. 
We're talking with Roger Leip, uh, FCA sports chaplain and uh, author, leader of Chaplains Around the Globe. And uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and it goes into uh, just on the surface level in many ways, the 26 years of experience working day by day in a relational ministry, which is really hard to articulate uh, in this sort of setting, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just tough to talk about in, in in any way because it's really about a relationship. So I wonder if as we get to the close of this, you can bring me inside one of those relationships. Can you give me an example or a story that you had a moment you said, I, I, I guess I, I know why I'm doing this. Um, just an, an affirming kind of moment where you said, this, this makes some sense or keeps me going uh, in this ministry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went through about five in my head while you were talking, but sure. I'm going to land on one. Uh, one was a swimmer, a uh, young man from middle state, Illinois, he comes down here. He's a swimmer. He's a butterflyer, a tough sport. And uh, he's coming to FCA meetings, partly because the girl he's interested in is coming to FCA meetings. But anyway, they're both there and they're growing and their, their relationship is developing. And I'm watching this kid kind of get it and then start to grow. And I'm like, this is pretty cool watching this happen. I remember sitting with him and his girl and his mom and dad at a shoulder surgery. I mean, he's a butterflyer and he's having labrum surgery, scaring the willies out of him. He doesn't know if he can come back. He doesn't know if he's going to come back and compete well or what. But walking through that process with them, continual development, you know, year to year, of the spiritual growth in him and watching this stuff happen. And then he qualifies for the Olympic trials. We're going, yes. But the dude's about five foot seven, five foot eight, not a big guy. Great at turns. I mean, he's making a lot of time in turns. He goes to the Olympic games trials and it's a 50 meter pool. All of a sudden there's one turn instead of three. And so everybody else, you know, I'm looking at the thing online and here's him at five foot eight. And then here's six foot three, six foot three, six foot six. And I'm going, Oh, this looks bad for our boy. <laughs> they get in the pool. They're already ahead of him <laughs> anyway, but he goes on, he does not qualify, but then uh, we had been talking through his whole career uh, week to week or month to month. We would talk about there's a day coming for you that you're going to touch the wall. And immediately you used to be a swimmer. That day's coming. Are you ready for that? Uh, the, the loss of identity and the sense of purpose that happens at the end of sporting careers is devastating to some people. And sure enough, that happened for him at that race. And maybe a year later, I'm interviewing him uh, and his now his wife. I did their wedding. It was awesome. Um, and we're interviewing them with the present set of uh, FCA kids at the university. And we're talking about just this issue of identity and what happens when you when you um, retire from sport. And he says, Raj, you know what? You told me about this for three years, but it still hammered me. He said, it was like I'd wake up in the morning at six and go, I got to get to the, no, I don't have to go to the pool. It, so it upset everything about it, the r- rhythm of life and all that. And he said, Raj, it was so difficult. It was like I'd spent my whole life writing right-handed. All of a sudden I have to write left-handed. He said, it was that much of a shift. But for me, what was fun was to walk with him through the surgery, through his development, through 
his marrying, you know, the whole process of getting married and then the end of his career and the realization that, man, this is tough. This shakes me. But to see his faith be really solid in the middle of it all, that's rich to me. It's Justin Wolf. That's what this is about. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. What a touching story. I I can only imagine the impact that you've had on so many other athletes just like him. I mean, we can hear it in your voice. Uh, we know through the experiences that you've had that uh, you, you care about what you do, you care about the people you do it with, and that seems to be the essence of your ministry. How cool. It's a privilege for me. I mean, they don't have to let me in. So it, I always sense that it's a profound privilege to be uh, able to serve. And uh, I get access to places lots of sports fans would just salivate thinking about. And, but for me, I'm always conscious that I'm a guest here. I'm always a guest. And it's a privilege to be given access to these people and these places. And uh, I want to love extravagantly and serve selflessly in the process. And Roger, through your work and through your words and your books um, <laughs> and, and through this podcast, uh, that uh, underlying humility comes through. And uh, we just thank you for the good work that you've uh, continued to do through uh, through sport and through um, your other connections, your leadership connections around the world. So thanks very much for joining us on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. You're very kind. And uh, I love what you guys are doing. For years, I would talk to some of my friends who are in academia. And I live over here in practitioner world. And we were often at opposite ends of a spectrum and had little connection. But what I've seen through the a couple of uh, global congresses on sport and Christianity and our uh, increasing connection with others in academia, I see each of our work enhancing the other. And I'm thrilled with this. I well, we appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Thanks very much, Rod. Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests. So you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.